Listen, there's a reason the ultra-wealthy have been investing in fine wine for centuries. Historically stable returns and a lack of volatility make it stand out compared to traditional assets, especially during a downturn. But now you can invest alongside with them with Vint. Vint is an SEC-qualified investment platform that offers shares of the most sought-after wines in the world. So join the thousands of investors diversifying with fine wine and spirits. Learn more at VINT.co. For full investment disclosure information and more, visit VINT.co. We got to stand together on common ground. We got to be together or we all fall down. Welcome to This is Civity. I'm Gina Valeria. Civity is a culture of deliberately engaging in relationships of respect and empathy with others who are different. In this episode, we explore the importance of bridging and relational infrastructure to achieving healthy communities. Our guest is Nangmo Kam, Senior Health Specialist at the World Bank. Based in Myanmar, Nang sees herself as someone who can help establish a system that knits together local services, including education, public health, and other services to improve access for everyone, no matter their social status, background, or ethnicity, and thus improve the overall health of her community. We are also joined in this episode by our Civity intern, Maya Fiorella. Welcome, Mocom. A pleasure to have you here. You were just talking about, before we jumped in, you were saying that when someone hears you're from Myanmar, we all would, oh, you know, we know about the coup. We know about the unrest. We know about the harm that's being done. What would you like people to know about Myanmar? I'm not denying that we have all these issues, uh, but I would like people to know how resilient uh, my people are, how resilient people in Myanmar are, and how we never hesitate uh, to help each other out, even though we don't have much. Uh, after U.S., or maybe we were at the same level as the U.S., uh, among the most giving uh, people in the world. And we do that not because we are rich and not because we have a lot of uh, you know, spare change, but uh, we do that because that's our way of life, that's our culture, and uh, we look up after each other. Yeah, so I guess... The history, uh, our history uh, of these all these conflict and all these adversity has probably set us up, um, and it's in our DNA now to watch out for each other. And that's actually um, a beautiful connection into bridging work, which Sibidi does, and which you're working to do in Myanmar. So, so as a public health specialist, how do you see using bridging work when you connected with Sibidi? Why was Sibidi something that you thought? you should bring into the work? I did not identify with that word bridging uh, until recently because, uh, you know, my, my background as a health specialist, I came from a medical uh, practitioner's background. And so we don't call the, it the bridging or as such, right? Uh, so I have been working for the last uh, almost two decades in the public health sector and also lately in the development sector. What I am finding more and more frequently is that whatever we do as a sectoral specialist in our own sector, whether be it um, health or be it in education or be it in agriculture, you know, uh, whatever sector that we work in as a sectoral specialist, if we don't look into uh, the complexity and the intersectionality of conflict, peace, humanitarian, you know, if we don't look uh, into those uh, intersectionality and try to um, designed our programs and trying to also, uh, you know, maneuver in that uh, complex space quite smartly, 
whatever we do in our own sector works will not be sustainable. All right. So just look at an example now, what's happening now, uh, now in my country. You know? So I have been working for the last two decades in, in health sector, helping to uh, build the health systems from, from different perspectives and from different roles. And that was what I have basically been doing for the last two decades. And now with events in February, uh, you know, overnight, um, whatever uh, people like me, uh, you know, who have uh, come before me and who are my colleagues, whatever we have done uh, in the past uh, to build the systems uh, have been wiped off uh, basically uh, within the blink of an eye. And, and that's because uh, our systems are not yet set up in a way to be uh, conflict resilient, resilience to conflict yet, right? So from that perspective, I thought, okay, you know, I can just be thinking about my own sector and coming up with whatever, you know, uh, designs that we can dream up about the uh, how to have a, a really good health program. But if we don't pay attention to this, uh, the, the wider environment and the bigger issue, uh, the bigger operating environment, so to speak, where our health programs are, are implemented, then uh, we will not get to where, where we want to go, right? At the end of the day, the, the, the health of the people uh, to be uh, improved. And also because of the conflict, you know, the, you know, war and conflict, they actually directly impact on health, right? They either kill people or they injure people or they, they uh, destroy the health infrastructure and, and they block access. Uh, you know, people cannot travel to seek care. Pregnant women cannot travel to the clinic because there is a war or there is a conflict on the way. So from, from all these uh, perspectives, you know, the conflict is actually directly and both indirectly affecting on the, the health of the people. And we need to deliver health services, especially to the people who are living in that kind of conflict situation. Who are better to do that than the health workers themselves, right? Both for their professional and ethical integrity, they are more trusted by everyone, even though the, the two parties may be fighting when it comes to health uh, and health workers, uh, we are in a, a more of a trusted position. So that's how I see the bridging, as you call it, you know, as a health worker who is working in the community, who is serving the people, regardless of uh, which warring parties or which conflicting parties. And, and, and we are in this uh, unique position to add as a bridge uh, for these uh, different uh, group of people. That's really interesting that the health workers during wars, other wars, the Red Cross has been supposedly the neutral party. Um, but it's nice to hear in Myanmar that the health workers are trusted on all counts or by all sides. And so that does put you in a unique position to try to bring people together or to try to find a way to do that bridging as, as Civity calls it. I came by actually by chance and also I have to thank a lot to my Eisenhower program officer, Shelley, because Shelley was the one helping me do a research uh, on you know the organizations and the experts that are out there who are really doing this really uh, groundbreaking work for the communities and, uh, and, and, and this kind of building piece. And she shared me, look, why don't you check out this uh, website? And it's, there's a group called Civity and I said, yes, why not? And so I click on it and then I, what jumped out immediately was about, you know, even the word civity. 
I'm not a native uh, English speaker, right? So when I first read uh, it, I, I thought, okay, I must have read it wrongly because I have heard what about is this word. Yeah, what is this word, right? <laughs> I have heard about civility, or I have what about civic civity? What is that, you know? So I even Google yeah, the, the definition. Is there like a, in a Webster? It's like what, what does civity said? So anyway, so then then I came across this description of you know like uh, using this. Um, relational infrastructure culture as an as an important and critical infrastructure and that's just sold me right because i have been missing words to express what i was thinking before right uh, so i what i wanted to say was exactly these things but not a native speaker and not really uh, really good with words and i i wasn't able to express myself and so basically like civity and this relational infrastructure or cultural infrastructure so these are the, the words that really jump out at me and grab my attention and I read on and, and I read about these uh, you know the theory of change and all that kind of stuff I really like civity's approach of you know really identifying the small things that we can do in our daily life right uh, it doesn't have to be something really big and out of this world but small thing that we can do in our daily life, uh, something organic, something doable, something that that really comes uh, intuitively and naturally as something that speaks to the human instinct, which is to, to connect with other people, right? Regardless of whether they are from different backgrounds or cultures, that our instinct is to connect with one another. So I really like the principles or, or the thinking behind it. And, and then I, I said, okay, I told my uh, program officer, oh, please get me a uh, a meeting time <laughs> with these ladies. I really want to talk to them. And so, yeah, that's how it got started and how I discovered, uh, so to speak, the, the civity. Because uh, as a technical specialist, you know, we always talk about physical infrastructure. We talk about this and that, but we never really explicitly talk about this cultural and relational infrastructure and, and the importance, uh, the critical importance it plays in any real success, any sustainable success story on the ground, right? Being able to put a word to that and call it by that exactly it, uh, I, I really love it. It's good to know how you connected with the work. And Malka and Palma, the co-founders, have put a lot of thought over the years into exactly how to say it well to really capture that. Here in the U.S., they founded Civity in 2015. And people were like, what? That seems squishy or people already know how to do that which in reality we've kind of forgotten right we've lost sight of how to make those connections yeah even though we have the instinct to do so and after our 2016 election when things were so polarized everyone's like oh is this what you're talking about yeah but it's interesting for me to hear that in other parts of the world and i'm glad yeah it, it's totally relatable right it's not a western concept or it, it's a human concept right it's a human instinct it's it cuts across all different cultures or backgrounds. I told Malka and Palma that, look, I really thank you for coming up with those, those words. <laughs> <laughs> and it sort of filled the vocabulary that I was missing before. And uh, yeah, so now, now I, I, I frequently uh, use it and uh, with, uh, you know, my friends or other colleagues and they're like, what, what, what is that word? <laughs> that's awesome. I love and it. And we got started on, yes, that's, that's, that's a word. And yeah, so, so far people were like, wow. That's so great. And also that it is a necessary thing to pay attention to, that we have to be deliberate and intentional about that work. And so you got a fellowship on conflict engagement. And conflict engagement seems like a very intentional um, 
thing to do. So what what is that and how do you plan to approach this? How I came to be on Eisenhower journey at first, the realization that what I was doing in a sectoral level is not really bringing the long lasting changes in the lives of the people and the, the discontent and, you know, okay, what more is out there? What can I do differently or what can I do more so that Whatever I do, it is not going to be uh, easily replaceable. So from that discontent, I was looking on my own to, uh, okay, about conflict and peace and this development and all these nexus issues. And a good friend of mine was an Eisenhower fellow before, and she said, look, why don't you uh, apply for, for this fellowship? And it will really open up the door for you to, to connect and make connections with people who are from completely different background and you will get access to you know, organizations and experts in the US who can help think through together with you, right? So I said, okay, why don't I give it a try? And fortunately, I got offered a, a fellowship. And as part of that fellowship, so this uh, program officer, Shelly, uh, and I, uh, we sat down together, of course, virtually, and uh, tried to design a program of, you know, uh, which organizations and peoples in the U.S. that I could reach out to and that I could, uh, you know, establish um relationship with and also learn from them as well as also of course share share my own experiences and as part of this fellowship proposal or a project uh, for lack of a better word what I put forth is I'm looking for something not not something that has to be financed by a donor or you know not a traditional project model because it can only go so far you know once you take out the donor from the equation then the, the project stops i don't want to follow that model maybe my whole life has always been like a, a project implementation so i know it it is it's helpful in some situation but not particularly in this situation where I'm looking more at being a, a catalyst for the societal change that cannot come through a project this project type of engagement. So what I wanted to do was, you know, I'm sure there are people out there. Uh, I mean, in Myanmar, people from the like, sort of a, like the sectoral uh, background, you know, like from health sector or education sector or agriculture sector or any, you know, any sector you can name, you know, like uh, the specialists, like technical technocrats uh, and also those uh, local actors on the ground uh, who are directly delivering these uh, very essential social services uh, to their communities and, and, and to, to uh, either the communities where they actually live in or the community that they are serving in. And there will be a lot of people like me who are feeling, okay, what is what else is there, right? What else is there to make our life, our, our work uh, more meaningful and more sustainable? So I want to reach out to this, this group of people. My proposal was, okay, uh, I'm a single person. I'm not doing this as an organization. I'm not here representing the World Bank. This is my individual passion and intention and commitment that I make to myself. So I wanted to uh, facilitate an informal a circle of uh, trusted people or learners or a community of practitioners. So I wanted to uh, establish a community of practitioners who come from different uh, technical and sectoral and or even from different walk of life backgrounds. Uh, and they bring with them a very rich uh, expertise in their own technical areas. But um, as a group, we could all, uh, you know, learn together how we can be more effective and more efficient and more intentional with our engagement in whatever sector that we are working so that we bring the principles of 
peace building. We bring the principles of uh, conflict uh, resolution and mediation and sustainable development into our work. And we share, we exchange ideas, we learn from each other. And uh, from that uh, small circle, you know, like a, a, a bubble with the ripples, my intention is that, okay, I will be the one who just started that, drop that bubble in the pond. But there will be a circles and circles and big, big uh, circles of uh, these practitioners who can do more work on the ground uh, and who can carry uh, these principles and who can model uh, these values, uh, these intentions uh, through their own work and to their own programs. So that's what I proposed and what I sold to the Eisenhower um, uh, interviewers, so to speak. And that's how I got uh, offered a fellowship. But it's not a, like a timeline a project as in a year project or three year project. This is my lifelong project. You mentioned a few stakeholders, but who is your dream team as far as bringing together that core group? Which sectors or which like who exactly do you want to be your your core group? So definitely the service providers, right? The essential services as in the health service provider on the ground, uh, as well as the education. Because when you talk to parents in the community, whether they belong to a certain, um, you know, religious belief or a certain political leaning or certain ethnic group, they all will tell you the same aspirations, the same hopes that they have for their children, right? They want their children to be healthy, to be uh, vaccinated, and they, they want their children to be educated and have opportunities in life. And, and that's the same uh, across everywhere, uh, regardless of which uh, group or communities that you go into. So, so from that perspective, uh, my, my dream team is the providers of the essential services in health and education and social protection kind of stuff. You're not like, okay, people who provide uh, safe water and uh, sanitation services on the ground, people who are teaching these young children and people who are helping the pregnant mothers have uh, you know, access to healthcare. And so those are my dream teams. And of course, uh, uh, these people are only the sectoral experts and sectoral practitioners. And I want uh, in my dream team, I also want people who have a really solid background in conflict uh, and mediation and, and, and peace building. If I have those people in the team, then we have the perfect mix of ingredients to make a really uh, uh, delicious dish. I, I love the way you talked about the fact that we all, whatever our political views or whatever it may be, we all want good education. We all want roads that work we all want we there's so much we want in common there's so much we desire for a healthy community and focusing on those things can really help so i'm curious how are you planning to use civity work and and do what you're doing to not only care for people but to bridge those really stark and sharp differences through this work? Already, you know, there are at a small scale, very good examples of where the concept of civities and bridging is already happening without my knowledge even, right? So, for example, in a health sector, um, we have these uh, difficult, hard-to-reach area where a lot of uh, ethnic minorities are, are residing and they have, uh, compared to the, the majority who lives in the urban area, their access to, to health is really uh, constrained by geography, by politics, by, by security, you know, by several reasons. 
And they also have their own providers in some areas which are not directly under the central government control. Uh, these ethnic areas have their own ethnic uh, health service provider and ethnic education providers. And, and before, you know, several decades back, uh, there's no interaction between the providers on this, these areas, the ethnic side versus the providers on the central government side. But because of this uh, common desire of the community on the ground, where they want to see their children educated, where they want to see their children immunized and be healthy, uh, there was a sort of a local demand, a demand from the community for the providers to speak to each other, right? So it wasn't initially like a providers are, you know, jumping up and, okay, let's talk to each other. But the demand from the community made the providers reach out to each other and started talking to each other on and to find uh, a common ground, even though they belong to a sort of a different political system and, and a different government, but then they talk to each other and, okay, let's try to find a way so that every child, regardless of where they are living, and, and, and to whom they belong to get immunization uh, for, for, for these uh, diseases, right? So they, they started that kind of conversation and there's already a coordination and collaboration happening uh, across the, the divide, so to speak. And, but of course, this is only at the, the local level and it also depends a lot on who at the time is working there as a provider. Yeah, so it's very dependent on personalities. It's not built into the the systems and the procedures and the processes. So if these persons uh, get, uh, you know, transferred uh, to a different place and a new person comes who is not as open as the previous one, then we have to start from scratch again. So that was uh, what what the situation uh, was before. And so what I am hoping is that uh, with more and more of these uh, practitioners out there who really understand and uh, internalize this understanding of, yes, we need to walk across the divide, whatever that divide may be, because uh, at the end of the day, common goal is, is, is to ha- help people reach their full potential. And also, Equipping these practitioners with the tools and and the way, uh, the mindset and how to think and where to look for uh, the necessary information or tools, uh, I think that will go a long way in the current uh, scenario. Ah, systems, very important. Maya, you, you have a question that I think we've touched on, but if you'd like to ask it specifically. Yeah, so you have touched on it a little bit, but I was wondering, once you establish and have that dream team, what are those next steps in aiming for conflict resolution and peace building? My ultimate goal is not at the national level, conflict resolution or peace building or even international level. My focus is only at the local where the services are delivered where there is uh, the most human interaction at the at the real lives of the people. So maybe the dream team is not exactly the right terminology to refer to them. This is a community of practitioners. It won't be a small team. So like I mentioned before, I just drop a pebble in the pond. I have uh, this information. I have these contacts and I will organize, you know, maybe the initial discussions and get together and help brainstorm together or, or even just a, uh, informal learning group where we all keep on learning and sharing and so that that community of practice it will be open to anyone who wants to be in it right so and then these practitioners uh, through their own work so some of the practitioners will be from the education sector so they go and walk in their education sector in whatever role that they may be 
And but when they go and work in it, whenever they design this education program or engagement, and uh, they would have this uh, conflict sensitivity and peace building at the back of their mind and not just uh, thinking solely about, okay, how to educate people and how to educate children, right? So whatever the, the curriculum that they are looking at, if they are designing an education curriculum, and then they will be uh, reviewing this curriculum with a conflict sensitivity, uh, you know, uh, lens and, and peace building lens. Agricultural worker, same thing, right? Health worker, the same thing. So that's how, how these people are going to be out there and, and doing their job, uh, being more aware and being more proficient in the values and the practice and the tools of the conflict management and uh, peace building. So that, that's, that's my intention. So my role is uh, to kickstart this conversation and also to put these uh, people in touch with uh, resources that are available out there. So okay, if they want to learn more about the conflict resolution skills, what are the trainings that are available out there for, for people like them? So more of a broker role, right? My role is uh, I'm not a project team leader. I am not a team leader. I'm a broker. I broker relationships. I broker knowledge. I broker access to uh, information. Amazing. I love that. Thank you so much for answering my question. You're welcome. You're listening to This is Civity. I'm Gina Bellaria. We're talking with Nang Mo Kam, Senior Health Specialist at the World Bank based in Myanmar, as well as Civity intern Maya Fiorella. You mentioned earlier that this is your life's work. This is isn't just a project you plan to kind of start and finish and be done. Through Maya's question, you defined yourself as a broker of relationships, a broker of, of connection. I would love to hear a little bit about how this work has been inherent to you throughout your life or career and, and what led you to this moment. So going back to my roots, right? I belong to one of the ethnic groups uh, here in Myanmar. I, I'm, I'm not a majority. Uh, so in, in Myanmar or Burma, whatever name you want to call it. Uh, so we have uh, several different uh, ethnic groups, right? The biggest uh, is the, the Burmese or the, the Burmans. Um, those are the majority. And then there are the ethnic minorities. So, so of, of the ethnic minorities, I belong to one of the group uh, called Shan. And my name is a very typical Shan name. So people who knows uh, Myanmar, you know, can immediately place me which ethnic group that I belong to. But because my father was a public servant and we move around a lot. And so I grew up all over the country, so to speak, not just in the Shan state. And so I have been exposed to diversity, the positive as well as uh, the negative, uh, the discriminations of it. And so that was how I, I, you know, my childhood growing up, I know how people treat uh, you differently if you speak uh, differently from them, if you have an accent, if you look differently, your skin color and your eyes and, you know, so, and that has always, I guess, uh, led me to instill in me uh, appreciation of inclusion, being inclusive and being, uh, you know, sensitive to, uh, to the differences. And then I studied medicine because, you know, at that time when I was finishing high school, we were also, again, under a military dictatorship at that time also. And there wasn't a lot of opportunities uh, for graduates, high school graduates. So if you do well in school, you either go to medical school or you become an engineer. You know, so those are basically the two options. And I decided to study medicine because I have always been interested in healing of, of some sort, right? So it's either the physical healing or, or, or 
all the emotional or psychological healing. So I study medicine and, and with the full intention that I will one day become a, a surgeon, a specialist, you know, like a, one of the few women in the country who is a, a surgeon. That's, that was my initial, the, you know, the childhood dream. But then the, in the later years of my medical school, you know, the more I'm exposed to actual patients in the hospital, the reality is very different from my romanticized version of, you know, what it means to be a, a doctor. <laughs> and, and then I, I got face to face with a really um, a very poorly resourced uh, health system. The medicines, cupboards are empty. And um, as a very junior doctor, you know, we ended up with an enviable task of asking for donations from the patients when they got discharged, you know, so, so that we can help poor patients. So, so then I, I started to question, you know, okay, what good uh, would I be able to do? To, uh, how much if I practice as a, as a clinician? And what could I do more if I don't practice as a clinician? And if I uh, study uh, public health, and if I do more on public health so that I can prevent the disease before it happened and before people need to come to a hospital and be faced with this kind of, you know, difficulties. So that, that, that's where the switch happened um, in later years of medical school. And so I, I switched to, uh, to, to study public health and, and become a public health specialist. And as a public health specialist, I have been fortunate to really uh, work in, in really uh, difficult and very uh, challenging areas like in the north of the country, in the jade mining community in Kachin, during the height of the uh, HIV uh, epidemic, and where we did not have any uh, treatment, no, no antiretroviral treatments available. So I, I would see a patient and uh, within a year or so, that patient uh, would pass away. So it, it's really heartbreaking. And, uh, and I work with Maidsons on Frontier at that time, and but really opened me up to to the other issues uh, that medical school uh, did not teach me, right? About this um, social determinants of health that we used to say, like the poverty uh, and, and other discrimination for being a sex worker, being a drug user. So, and then I, I got a chance to uh, also work with the International HIV AIDS Alliance, which is another international NGO that really promotes a grassroots action for the HIV response. I worked with, with a very small civil society organizations, uh, very, uh, you know, sex worker groups and, and drug user groups when uh, they were considered illegal activities and they could get arrested. But my work was sort of uh, mobilizing them to form groups and speak up and advocate. So all these experiences, work experiences have shaped me to uh, be more rights-minded and to be more inclusive and to really uh, address uh, discrimination, even though it may be uh, really uncomfortable to speak up sometimes in some contexts, right? So, so that's where, I guess, uh, my upbringing as belonging to a, a minority ethnic group, as well as my work experiences throughout my career has really helped me to, 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 to develop this uh, questioning mindset. And always uh, asking myself, what more, you know, what else, uh, how differently can we and, and should we be doing things? Yeah, it's very interesting. People who are drawn to civity work, not everyone, but there tends to be a story of being othered or 
or of being outside of something leads us to want to bridge and to or to to seeing othering and and to seeing the effects of it. You talked about social determinants of health and and how just that act of othering, just that act of separating out can be so harmful. You put it really uh, nicely. Yes. Being um, always on the minority side or, or on the different side from from wherever I I end up in. Yes, I guess that have helped me to develop my 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 seeing skills uh, <laughs> in a way uh, to really uh, yeah see things where yeah normally people uh, who haven't been exposed to this kind of uh, uh, upbringing or the formative through my formative years and also the idea of how a system I want to kind of go back to that earlier point of how a system can affect that so deeply um I don't know how it is in Myanmar, in the U.S., I think sometimes we we don't often societally understand how systems affect things. There's the manifest destiny. There's the pull yourself up. And how systems play a role is hugely important. And so a lot of what I'm hearing from you is, is um, trying to, one, bridge, but two, infuse the system or build a system in which these types of... Um, approaches to public health and to care and to seeing are are infused in the system so that they can persist. Where do you want to go from this moment to get at that system? For the last um, seven or eight years, my work um, with the World Bank uh, as a senior health specialist has, has been more about uh, looking at the systems level, health systems level, and um, you know, looking at the interventions and the policies that uh, can have an impact on the system level change. It's not an easy, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> That's uh, probably the, right. the understatement of the century. You know, when you are uh, walking a system, <laughs> it's not an easy task uh, because the systems have been uh, built uh, for better or worse for, you know, over over decades and decades. And even uh, maybe in, in some cases, uh, all these uh, systemic uh, racism or, or that kind of stuff is over centuries. You know, reflecting on my own experience, um, even from uh, when I look at myself, you know, some of the, the kind of stuff that I used to say before, and that I used to think the way I used to think, I didn't realize that, um, you know, actually I was just, uh, I don't want to call myself a victim, but um, I was influenced by the system that I, that I got educated in, you know, so I got educated in the public system. When I was educated, going through this public education system, the system was um, obviously very, um, you know, geared towards a, a certain uh, majority groups. Just a simple example, if, I, if parents wanted to have a, a good education for their children, they only have a, a few locations that they can consider sending their kids to. And those locations uh, happen not to be in the ethnic areas. It happened to concentrate in the majority Burman areas, you know, where there's better infrastructure, better schools, better teachers, and better everything. So the aspirations for parents, um, for their children is, yes, please study hard, and then you can go to Yangon, you know, the, the, the city, and you can go to Mandalay, the city, and go to the university there, and, you know, study there, and become this and that. I just want to also share a, a family uh, story. Um, both my parents, they come from uh, Shan ethnicity, but my paternal grandfather, he gave all of his children Burmese name, not Shan name. 
So all his children are named, a very typical, very Burmese name. And I, I asked my dad, you know, look, why, you know, uh, when I was a kid, I asked him, why, why were you not given a Shan name? I am given a Shan name by you, but why didn't you have a Shan name? And what he said uh, really stuck uh, in my head uh, till this day. He said, look, when I was growing up, when I was a child at your age, you know, if I had a Shan name and the, the opportunities open to me in terms of education, in terms of job prospects, are way less than if I have a Burmese name. That's why my father gave all his children, even though they are Sham, they are ethnic people, uh, we, we all have uh, the Burmese name. So that's, that's not a, a unique story to my family. That story is uh, common uh, across a lot of families in ethnic area. So that's how the system is, you know, prioritizing and favoring a certain groups uh, over another. And my friends, I have really good friends who belong to this majority um, uh, group. And they, they, they spend their life uh, all the time in the city and uh, they haven't been exposed to, to outside of the city and how, how other people feel and how other people uh, are educating and it's inside that. So when I brought up this kind of uh, uncomfortable issues, right? You know, I, I told them, look, I, I have always felt like, uh, you know, I, I'm disadvantaged compared to you because of my name, because of where I come from. And he was like, no, I did not. I did not discriminate you. No, no, I'm not saying that you did it personally. It's just the system is such that, uh, yeah. But sometimes, they, you know, they feel challenged. They feel like they they are being personally challenged by me for raising this kind of issue, and so it can get a bit uncomfortable uh, conversation, right? So nowadays, with the more younger generation, I'm more hopeful that uh, this younger generation is more woke. Than, the, than my generation. And that, that's true because they were exposed to outside world. And my generation did not get an exposure to outside world, you know, because everything was closed, shut, shut down. And whatever that we could learn uh, was uh, from, from the books that we were given to by, by that time, the government of that time, right? So, so that's how we learned. And so our mind were more closed, but this new younger generation, uh, I have more hope uh, for the future when I look at them and when I hear them speak. I agree. I got to say, similarly here, Maya is part of this generation that I'm so impressed with because, yeah, the open-mindedness and the way they're thinking about things is is really exciting to me. And, you know, what you describe, that happens here in the U.S. too. You know, over the course of, you know, the past, I don't even know how long, but people change their names. You know, actors change their names. Um so many Italian actors, I happen to be of Italian ancestry and, you know, Tony Benedetto is Tony Bennett. You know, everybody's name has changed because they're trying to sound more American or separate themselves from whatever ethnicity was seen as other. And there are studies that show if you send the same resume with different sounding names. Yeah. Yeah. And the same things happens here. People feel personally attacked. And that piece of no, no, it's the system. And I think Civity cares a lot about, about you know, no, let, let's talk about the system and how we can... Uh, be aware of it and be intentional about pushing back on it is, is so important. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yes. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, diversity, I think it's a hallmark of every nation, right? We can find a single nation where we can say, oh, it's a homogeneous. Yeah. So diversity holds so much potential uh, for good, uh, but also it's also so fraught with misunderstanding and prejudices until we can 
find a way to speak about it without feeling like we are personally attacking each other, right? So I'm getting a bit more comfortable with this kind of conversation. Um, but initially, it was uh, so hard to also um, address my own emotions, right? Because, uh, of course, I'm also not a neutral party. You know, I have all these life experiences uh, uh, where I felt wronged and so Whenever I try to bring up uh, this kind of uh, issues uh, to surface them, and then the, those those old emotions and old trauma will tend to come up uh, to the fore, and then that may be taken negatively by the other party. And yeah, it's just looking at my own personal experiences is you know addressing my own emotions, not necessarily saying that I have to hide them or or subsume them. It's just that, yes, I have these emotions and, uh, you know, acknowledging them and then uh, using these emotions and, and turning them in a positive way to, to start a dialogue. And that's why I really like uh, Civity work on the storytelling and, you know, like, yeah, telling your story and also listening to other people's story. It comes so naturally to, to my generation and the generation before we talk about stories, right? So, so I, I just share you my stories, like right? my story about my father and, and how I was brought up and things like that. So I think we really need to bring back that storytelling culture into our society because now we are like uh, all the time swiping and, and reading stories on the, uh, <laughs> on the social media instead of actually saying it to the person uh, sitting next to you or at a bus stop or on the bus or in a, on a train or, or wherever you may end up to be. I completely agree. I love hearing everybody's stories. I love hearing your story. I love hearing everybody's stories. And that's how we find commonality. And that's how we come to recognize no one's neutral. You know, we all come from somewhere. Yeah. But is there any concern or fear about doing this work? No, not really, because what I am doing is not well, in a way, it's it's trying to like uh, the societal change, uh, but I'm not trying to take down any um, any government or any any authorities. Uh, uh, so I I don't think this is going to be harmful to anyone at all, or including myself. Is there anything? Else, you think it's important for people to know that that I didn't ask you today that you feel it's important to get out there? I used to think, oh, the problems are so huge. The societal challenge is too big, you know, and these issues have been brewing for even before I was born. What could I do as a single person, right? As a one person, not having any grandiose delusion about my own, uh, you know, capacity or ability to do anything. So I used to uh, despair about things, right? Okay, you know, I, what am I? I am just a tiny little person. I don't have any background or anything, so to speak. And and these issues, uh, whatever I do now, and uh, I may not see the, the outcome, the results that I want to see for the society before I die. So what's the point of doing? In it right so that I have I used to think that way in the dark days but now um, you know I, I'm like okay I'm a single person but every day I can intentionally do one very tiny little things that who knows you know that can lead uh, you know uh, to a chain reaction that I may not see it and, and, and in this lifetime or another lifetime or a third lifetime but uh, if I do something intentionally and, and from a good place and authentically in my interaction with people, uh, especially with people who are different from me, then that's already uh, something meaningful that I'm doing. And that's what I also want to say to people out there who feel despair that, you know, the world is, is a difficult place to live in and you are seeing all this new cycle and this one bad news after another and you feel like everything doesn't really make sense. But please 
take heart and just do uh, one single small things what that you can do every day with intention and and with authenticity especially with the people who are different from you that's my message yeah um mokam it has been beyond a pleasure to talk with you i really appreciate you taking the time to do this with us thank you to our guest nang mokam senior health specialist at the world bank based in myanmar Nang's work aligns with the civity principles of building relational infrastructure to bridge difference and move from us versus them to we all belong. This is Civity features people who are building relationships to dismantle inequities and strengthen communities grounded in respect and empathy. Civity's theme song is Common Ground, performed by Tommy Castro and the Painkillers, written by Tommy Castro and Kevin Bowe, and used courtesy of Alligator Records and Dangerous Entertainment. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening to This Is Civity. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.